Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. This episode is sponsored by Pier 60 Incorporated. Pier 60 Incorporated knows that the best JavaScript developers hone their skills by listening to JavaScript Jabber podcast. If you're looking for a front-end or full-stack development opportunity helping Fortune 100 companies understand their customers better, email jobs at pier60.com. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 93 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Coming at you live from the snow. JavaScript. <laughs> JavaScript. Jameson Dance. I am having a date Is that today. like my, my nickname? Jameson JavaScript, JavaScript Dance. Hi, friends. Yeah, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have uh, three guests. We have Aiten Konigsberg. Aiton, yeah. Aiton. I, I, I only slightly butchered it. It was close. It was a good effort. Uh, we also have Alistair Coote. Yep, that one's dead on. <laughs> and Reed Emmons. Hey, guys. I'm actually going to leave all the talking to Aiton and Alistair. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, depending on what your expertise is, that may or may not be a good idea. <laughs> I, I think I saw manager in your title, so um, I'll leave it up to them whether or not that's a good idea. But, uh, yeah, so do you guys want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Uh, sure. So, um, yeah, my name's Alastair Coote. I'm a developer here at the New York Times, and I work on our mobile web products, uh, which mainly consists of our mobile website and also uh, a web app we recently launched called Today's Paper. And I'm Eitan Konigsberg. I'm a front-end software architect here at the New York Times. We just completed our major redesign of nytimes.com. Awesome. Which I've seen getting really positive reviews. I don't think I've seen anyone complain about it. That seems to be like the bar of success for redesigns, right? You redesign uh, and yeah, it out. Yeah, that's, that's also, uh, uh, I think, what Slate wrote about, how nobody was enraged <laughs> that we redesigned our website. So Reed really is going to leave all the talking to you guys. <laughs> Which of you is going to say, hi, I'm Reed, and I'm whatever? <laughs> oh, I, I better jump in here before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, my name's Reed. I, I am the, the manager of, of development for the, the redesign here. And um, so we've been kind of charging ahead for, for a last long time doing this this redesign. So that's who I am. So when you're talking about making it mobile-friendly, are you did you actually redesign it to have like responsive design or was it more along the lines of, uh, you know, actually reworking certain uh, aspects of it? So you hit it with a mobile device and it loads a different page or what? It's actually all the same page. Um, we have a, a number of breakpoints at different sizes that apply to different devices. Although uh, we basically go down to a tablet size on the low end and uh, very, very large widths on the high end, but it's not fully responsive to any any size. So actually, uh, Alistair can tell you that we, we do serve the mobile version of our website to phone and small devices, and that's a separate, that's a whole separate application. Mm-hmm. But the NewYorkTimes.com, the actual, I don't know what to call it, the desktop website does apply to tablets, and it is all the same code running on different uh, viewport widths. Okay. Uh, 
So yeah, the the mobile website is a it is a sort of a quite separate beast, um, which was done deliberately because it really sort of allows us on the mobile end to optimize things for you know sort of mobile connections, incredibly small download sizes, that kind of thing. So, so are you talking about making images smaller or? Um, not just that, um, although partially that, uh, we have all sorts of, I mean, we have a huge number of different sort of automated backend systems, one of which takes every image that appears on the site and provides us with a variety of different crops and different picture sizes and all that kind of stuff, so we can sort of pick out which ones are most mobile-friendly. But also just, it's sort of just an issue with dealing with the different strengths and weaknesses of the platforms, I suppose you could say. Um, on the mobile site, we have to deal with People coming with, you know, sort of a, a browser on BlackBerry 4.6 or something like that, whereas on the desktop side, they've got to deal with, you know, old versions of Internet Explorer. So um, it's, it, it sort of helps us to be able to sort of separate out concerns like that. And so the mobile site, yeah, sort of has to go all the way down to these very sort of dumb phone devices that would have held back the redesign of the desktop site if they'd had to do something similar to that. Okay. Do you have plans to try and port some of the redesigned stuff from the desktop site to the mobile site? How does that work? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, it's sort of interesting the way everything's set up in that both the, uh, the desktop site and the mobile site are all calling the same backend. So it's not as if they're two completely divorced separate things. We have extensive internal APIs for getting actual article content and sections and, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, both of them are drawing from the same source. And um, one, of the, one of the projects we've got coming up soon is really sort of integrating some of the really interesting sort of interactive features that we have on the Times um, and bringing sort of mobile and desktop parity between those two, which is going to be kind of an interesting challenge. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask about that. Well, one of the, so when I think of the New York Times, one of the things I think of is all the amazing visualization features you guys do and how much of that is ported over to mobile stuff and how much of it is desktop only. Uh, these days, most of them are done um, resp- responsively. Um, the, the interactives are sort of created within the newsroom um, and they will make stuff that scales down appropriately. Um, and often they will live sort of independently of both the mobile and desktop site, but that's sort of um, what I think in the future we're sort of hoping to bring them in and sort of have everything integrated in one place. So yeah, that's that's our next <laughs> our next aim. So I'm, I'm curious, we're talking about front-end stuff, you've done a lot of uh, interactive stuff. The one that comes to my mind is uh, during the election a year or so ago, you know, they, they had all this numbers and states and counties and voting districts and all this stuff and it was all colorized and as soon as new information came in it updated i understand that that was all done in javascript um it's actually not something we can speak to too well um because it's done as we said yeah but the the newsroom has their own set of developers um Mm -hmm. some some of which are even uh, based in the bureau in dc um who are sort of you know right there in the thick of all the action but um, from, what I, from what I understand, particularly dealing with high traffic events like the elections, um, there's a lot of sort of back end processing that's just going to spit out flat files. So in, in that respect, it sort of uh, it scales infinitely, um, which is one of the big concerns that we have times like that. That makes sense. Do you have a standard toolkit that you use for stuff like that? And actually, I just wanted to jump right in there real quick was, um, you know, I think there's two ways to, to look at technology at the New York Times. You know, there's the newsroom who's really focusing on um, very reactive sort of news events. And it's, you know, the folks upstairs, uh, we're part of NewYorkTimes.com. We're really building the roads and people like Interact News are having parades on our roads. And so I, I always enjoyed that, analysis, uh, that analogy. Um, and, and one of the, the neat things about this redesign that I think we hopefully accomplished was we're sort of having parades on our own roads now. We're doing some really fancy things with the, the article redesign. But a lot of those reactive sort of um, very um, 
kind of news events are, are all handled by our, our newsroom. And we kind of just put the tools there uh, in place to, to let them kind of go for it. Do you want to talk about some of that tooling that you guys do? So, I mean, what kind of infrastructure do you have built up to do things like that? They handle most of their data concerns, and they basically deliver us uh, an application in widget form, um, which is a challenge in and of itself to try and integrate an entire application into another one. The other uh, interesting thing about it is they are considered content down in the newsroom, and a lot of their stuff has to work for uh, as long as possible um, with browsers changing and uh, libraries and frameworks getting out of date. Uh, it's a real challenge for us to keep these things working for as long as possible uh, when oh, there are standalone sure. applications embedded within another one. But we basically, uh, we give them full, full reign uh, over, you know, we can, we, they have a free form. They can basically put any HTML or JavaScript and style sheets that they need into their own container. Uh, they have access to any of our frameworks, uh, any jQuery backbone underscore. Uh, they can include their own if they use D3 or any other library that they need to do their visualization. They can do that as well. Uh, we communicate some uh, of our responsive breakpoints, which are all done in JavaScript, not media queries. We communicate some of that to them so they can adjust depending on the width of the viewport. It's a lot. It's it's a it was a real integration challenge, but it's something we had never done as an organization before, and it actually has been really uh, fascinating. And they've actually been able to contribute to our code base, which is another milestone that uh, we had never really had before. Oh come on! Everybody knows that those other developers, whoever they are, they just write crap, right? <laughs> if it's if it wasn't written by us, it's crap, right? <laughs> well, it's it's a different uh, it's a different development cycle for them. Uh, if something's happening yeah. in the news, they gotta build it, you know, and ship it within a day. And you know, we get we can have you know, we can scrum and do agile and have sprints and take months, you know, developing something. And you know, those two uh, different cycles means that it's a real challenge making sure that their needs are met in a timely manner. And I think a lot of the uh, sort of recent developments in front end JavaScript have sort of helped a lot in that sense that. It was, you know, the, the last time the New York Times website was redesigned was years and years ago. And, you know, since then, just, you know, things like Require.js and all of that kind of really sort of making front-end JavaScript more modular and more pluggable um, really helps that kind of workflow a lot. Yeah, I, I want to hark back to uh, uh, something that you said earlier. You said uh, responsive breakpoints. And we, we talked a little bit about that when we were talking about, like, the, the mobile design and things. But then you said that you handle it all in JavaScript, so it's not media queries? Mm-hmm. How how are you doing that? What's the difference? Um, well, media queries uh, it requires uh, support. Going back to uh, uh, all the browsers that we have in our our supported browser list, and a lot of our users come in with older browsers that that didn't have enough support for what we wanted to do. Uh, JavaScript also it gives us a chance to uh, use an event based system when the viewport changes, um, and we also have to know what the viewport size is in order to choose the right image size because there is no great browser solution for choosing a, the correct image to download. And so doing it all in JavaScript basically met all those needs. And it was more than just uh, applying the right styles at the right size. It, it had to do with integrating with a lot of the features and, and layout considerations that we had for the page. So are you doing stuff with Modernizer for that? or Modernizer gives us a lot. We do use it, but uh, we don't use any of the polyfills. We really only use it to detect the feature set of the browser. We wrote our own uh, framework to do responsive breakpoints, and it, it basically also had to run outside of the rest of our required JS and MVC frameworks uh, so that it was available on the window, and we can actually uh, listen to all the events and uh, react accordingly. And 
it's a it's a pretty neat system, and we also did it in a way that it was additive. So uh, smaller breakpoints are just uh, all the breakpoints are class names on the on the HTML tag, and all the breakpoints that are smaller than the one that you're currently on are included as well. So we can do an additive CSS as opposed to uh, defining the entire fra- the entire uh, layout for each breakpoint. Okay. If that makes any sense, you can have sub subgrids basically because unless you know they only care about changes at certain widths and then they can react accordingly. So you brought up a point when you were talking about all the responsive stuff that you were doing that brought up a question in my mind, which is in my mind the the New York Times is one of the classic document based websites, right? Where you're going between resources, you you click on a link and it takes you to a page that just renders some text and stuff. And maybe there's islands of interactivity in there, but you mentioned JavaScript MVCs. How much are you doing in JavaScript and, and how do you balance that with what seems to me like more of a traditional page by page web application? So it's an interesting question. Uh, what we do is we have all of our news data in a CMS and it's available over an API. And so what we can actually do is we can render some static markup uh, and cache it for a really long time because we actually do a lot of really interesting things, mostly in JavaScript on our new website. Um, and we use uh, MVC frameworks basically to organize our, our widgets. Uh, this is the first time we've actually done anything like that. Most of the JavaScript work on our website in the old design uh, were a bunch of independent pieces of code that uh, repeated a lot of work and handled their own, they might have embedded their own styles as a string or their own markup as a string. Um, and what we've done now is we've created a way that we don't repeat the same amount of work. We have a framework that can capture page level events and pass it to all the widgets that care about it. Uh, widgets can communicate with each other and react to uh, state changes. So if a breaking news alert appears at the top of the article now, anything that, that is a uh, fixed position can actually adjust itself and make sure it's in the right spot and keeping it all consistent is all done through event-based uh, messaging. So we actually do all the personalization on the client side as well. So if you come from the homepage, we'll show you the rest of the homepage uh, feed at the top of the page. If you come from your recommendations, we'll show you that. Uh, all that is chosen at runtime by JavaScript, uh, including advertisements. Uh, we, we lay out the page in, in interesting ways uh, based on what ads we get back. Uh, so... Uh, there's a lot that we have to do on the client side because we can't really cache personalized data very well. What do you mean when you say there's a lot you have to do because you can't cache personalized um, data? So if we were to write markup that was specific to a, an individual user, uh, caching that in our in our server infrastructure wouldn't be very efficient. We'd be every single individual person would have their own copy of of what would what should be the same content for everybody. So what we do is oh, we, sure. we, ca- we cache a generated page and we enhance it for that user in JavaScript later. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I look at this and for the most part, I mean, it, it's a pretty simple looking page, you know, and I've been clicking around to the different sections and stuff. And, you know, for the most part, it seems like it's just a, a giant CMS. But, you know, you, you make it sound like there's a whole lot more to it than that. And I understand that, you know, you have the data and information in a CMS on, on the back end. And, you know, you're, you're rendering a lot of this with the JavaScript. Are there things in here that, that people just don't understand would be that tricky to build? Uh, I, I mean, you're referring to the, our, our article pages? Because, uh, yeah. okay, because we, we reskinned the front page as well, but we didn't actually change much on, in terms of functionality there. Um, but on the article pages, I don't think I've heard any specific feedback that has been really confusing to people. There's a little bit of a 
awkwardness, I think, with the two panes with comments that people aren't really used to. And the way scroll events work in the browser, it can get a little funny when you're scrolling through one and the other one starts to move. But we actually discovered there's an interesting thing that people are doing is that they go from our homepage to an article and then they'll hit the back button to go back to the homepage. And we're really surprised by this because we've spent a lot of time building ways to go forward from the article. Uh, there's the, we call it the ribbon at the top, which is that uh, horizontal listing of stories, uh, usually in the feed in which you came from. Uh, so if you were on the homepage, it should say homepage and you can see all the stories there. At the bottom, we give you some suggestions on what comes next uh, within the feed itself and some recommendations for you. We have related assets all over the story. The little arrows that appear on the right and left can help you navigate. You can click them or swipe. But people seem to like their, you know, dip in and then hop back out to the homepage and find something else and, and they do this, you know, forward back type of movement. Uh, so I think, I think there's a lot that people, that users need to adjust to with this new design. We just try to enhance our content, and uh, you know, it's more than just the story. There's the photography, which we really like. You can actually see the really large photos, which we, we didn't always expose before. I believe in some cases it was still showing up in a pop-up. Uh, now we have this uh, awesome media viewer where you can, you can see your videos and, and the slides full screen. Uh, it looks really great. And the, the fixed nav at the top gives us some some useful uh, you know utilities. Uh, you used to have to scroll either the top or bottom of the article to uh, share it, and you know share kind of persists and follows you as you go around. Uh, so to search, uh, if you want to look up or switch to a new location, the entire navigation is present instead of just that section or its subsections. You get the entire taxonomy of our entire site available on the page. So we've tried to like make the experience of being in an article not not so not such a silo that you can actually break out and, and experience the whole depth that is the New York Times just from one page, which is a challenge, a design challenge and a tech challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anytime you have like a, a major established product like this that has a huge user base, it seems like there's a balance in redesigning between making things better and, and the cost to users of throwing away the knowledge they've gained already on it. So even if it's absolutely better because users have to relearn things, they might, they might end up hating it and, and leaving or something. How do yeah. you balance the, the change to make things better with kind of maintaining familiarity? I mean, maybe Reed can talk to some of the specifics on maybe how some of the decisions were made. But uh, what we were doing, uh, while there is a fresh skin and a new look and all these new features that that people can experience, uh, a lot of this actually happened under the hood. The website itself has gone through an enormous. Uh, infrastructure and technology change. What was happening before was when I said that we were, we could generate a static, some markup, we were actually creating a file on disk uh, that couldn't change unless you republished that article uh, using the terminology from the paper. Um, and the problem is, is that uh, those files persist forever. They're static and doing dynamic things has been a real challenge. If you change any of the markup or you want to add something new and you have to account for legacy, uh, it was a huge infrastructural and uh, difficult problem for us to solve. So what we've done under the hood is we've had, we have this entirely new dynamic system that allows us to make tweaks a lot faster. And this notion of a monolithic redesign is kind of moot. We can actually uh, change in a more agile way in response that we get from our customers in addition to uh, any any boundaries or innovations we'd like to push on our own. I don't know if Reed has uh, anything he'd like to mention in terms of how, how we did we did some user testing. We, we got some notions on how people uh, use the site, you know, the old site. It's hard to get the terminology straight now. Uh, how they use the old site and what kinds of things they looked for, what kind of reader they were, and how they wanted to experience the news on the web. 
so there were some interesting things that we had to do to get around all that. So you're talking about a redesign and you've talked about some changes on the front end and the back end. I guess line for line, how does it break down? Is there more code on the back end or the front end? <laughs> um, I think we've written a lot, a lot of JavaScript than we have uh, on our back end. We have our own templating framework that we use uh, to, to generate the HTML, but it's designed in a way so it's not very repetitive at all. So we actually had to write a bunch of new JavaScript widgets from scratch. Uh, we didn't port anything over from our old website. And so we basically started with a, a new framework of required JS and Backbone, one to give us uh, scoping and one to give us structure. And we had to basically write everything all over again. I think most of that was done on, for the client side as opposed to on the server. Uh, I mean, a lot of it is in terms of actual like physical uh, infrastructure, you know, new new hardwares and uh, caches and things like that. But uh, in terms of what we did and uh, technology-wise, is we changed a number of uh, in our build system and what frameworks we use, and just the entire JavaScript widget application writing for our for our page has completely been overhauled. Yeah, there are some pretty nice widgets on here. One other question I have is: you said that you were tracking behavior and performance on the old website, and I'm assuming you're doing that now on the new website so that you can continue to improve it. What kinds of things are you looking for and what tools are you using in order to measure those things? In terms of tracking behavior, we, we do try to, to, uh, to track. Uh, we have our own analytics for uh, events that occur on our pages just to get a sense of what things are used and how, how deep people go in our navigation or th- what widgets they interact with and for you know in what way what links get clicked what do- doesn't get clicked just to to have some knowledge on what features people are finding useful and or just discovering or aren't featured very well yeah and, and, ju- and just to kind of build on that um, before we even started development there were you know several wireframes and several versions of what the new york times was going to be like that was experimented with with users. We we did internal user testing, had live users sit in front of it. And then we had a prototype that we put in front of um, New York Times users in public and randomized kind of entry in, into that prototype. So we, we had a lot of learnings there before we even had, you know, the production version of the site go out of how users were really using the site and did A-B tests of what worked better and, and what pe- people didn't like. And and so be, before even we, we launched, we had a, a pretty large wealth of data uh, of how people were using the site. And that's how we made a lot of these decisions. And so we went through several iterations of of what the New York Times was before we even got to this point. So it, it's been kind of a, an evolving process here. So most people don't work at the New York Times, right? Like, sounds dumb to say, but it's true. You guys are in a very unique position. Are there any things that you think developers working on other products might have smaller audiences or, or slightly different focuses are there any things that they can learn from your experience in doing the redesign? Uh, it's hard to say. Actually, uh, it's just a personal anecdote. I found that uh, what was our normal day-to-day, uh, what things, decisions we had made and choices we had made, I didn't think that would apply to very many other people only because the size of this organization and its goals in terms of journalism it's it's really interesting that we have a we have our strange workflows and we had to adapt a lot of these things for our use case and so i don't know how much of it really applied to other people i actually struggled personally trying to reach out 
whether we should reach out to people who created some of the JS frameworks that we use to ask them if we're using it right <laughs> or if, uh, if, there's, if they had any suggestions on what we should be doing because it, turned, it turns out that some of the, the normal situations that these frameworks account for may not have applied to us you know, as they were. We had to kind of tweak and adapt things to make it the way that we needed it to be. Um, so I, I don't know how much of that is really useful. We've been interested in trying to be more open in terms of the technology we're using and some of the decisions we've made and, and what we found in our experience and, and in terms of how we've used everything. And maybe that's helpful to some people somewhere, but often it feels like every, every organization kind of has to solve these things for themselves. And the best advice that we can give is to say, that's okay. Uh, and that, you know, you don't have to use them the way that you, you're told to use them. You know, understand the tools you use and adapt them for your needs. Um, one thing I think we can all kind of uh, learn from is uh, in, with this technology we use on both the mobile web and the website is uh, we use Varnish. And, um, and this isn't really front end, but Varnish is really what makes our, our site go really, really fast. Um, so just, you know, having that reverse proxy there and serving pages ridiculously fast and just, you know, in, in the, the mobile web site is, is, I know Varnish is a big reason why, why that site is fast. And it's the one site that I can read going through the Lincoln tunnel on my, my commute to work. So, um, the fact that, it loads in, in there means that, you know, um, we, we're, it's certainly doing something right. So I, I know Alistair can talk a little bit more to that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the other thing I was sort of thinking is a, a sort of a takeaway from from both on the mobile side and the desktop side, because we extensively redeveloped the mobile site last year, was that sort of this has been described as the last redesign that we're going to do of the New York Times, because this has been such um, it's such a huge project. Um, and then in the future, really sort of, you know, this kind of like iterative process is the way that we're going to try and move forward. Um, and I, th I feel like that's a model that makes a lot of sense for a lot of people because tackling stuff in huge chunks just sort of ends up you know, becoming a bigger issue than it, than it should be. That's something that I'm kind of curious about. So was the old website just something that you couldn't iterate from? Uh, yeah, it was uh, a real challenge. Like I said, we, we used to write those pages to disk. Um, we wouldn't change them unless there was actually some publish action taken on them. Uh, and that was an expensive process to do on a massive amount of articles. And so what we would be left with is as new projects evolved and new things got built, uh, adding new HTML to pages. So you, every time we made a change, there was a, there was basically this one point in time where everything that came before had an old configuration and everything that came after had a new configuration. But we didn't have any way to, version our front-end assets. So a lot of our code just grew and grew and grew, and we couldn't remove anything because we were unsure of what would break. And there were just n number of permutations of these configurations, and it just became this massive weight that we just never we, we never tackled, and we finally did in this redesign. And since everything is dynamic now, and we, we version everything, and we cache it so aggressively, and we can change it really uh, in a short amount of time. We're actually able to uh, not only fix bugs quickly, but uh, introduce new features on an entire category of pages that we could reason about uh, and have an understanding of of how it affects our site almost immediately. I, I think a lot of the credit for that needs to go to the guys who work on our APIs, um, mostly internal, other some external ones as well. That a few years ago, you know, we didn't have the means to just go to an API and say, "Hi, I want to get this article content." Um, whereas now we have this fantastic suite of APIs where. Really, no matter what kind of content you might want at various points in New York Times history, it's just a single API call away. Um, so that frees us up from a lot of those concerns. 
Definitely. So what is your development process at the New York Times? You said you do Agile, but uh, I've met a lot of people who say they do Agile. So you want to talk about that? Um, sure. Although uh, I think Reed has a, a, a better uh, a better picture of it, if I'm going to defer over to him. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the, the mobile web has their own process. I'll, I'll speak more to, um, you know, how we're, we're building the desktop version of the New York Times, which is tablet and up. And so, you know, we, we've been, you know, ha- we've had a large development team for uh, a quite long time working on the redesign and, and just pretty much putting all of our resources in. We worked during the redesign on two-week sprints. And now that the redesign is over, really looking at one-week sprints now, we have a platform that we can finally be iterative on. And so we can really change in uh, in a, a one-week time period. And uh, the business needs change just as, as quickly as technology changes. So we're finding that the one-week sprint works really well and looking really at getting that minimum viable product out there in front of users as soon as, you know, product lets us now and then iterating on that in development and, and find when, when the best place is to, to move on to the, the next largest priority. And um, so that's kind of what Agile looks like in, in our organization is one week sprints and being able to quickly respond to other changes. What was it like before it was when it was harder to iterate quickly? We had 15 developers and 15 different projects happen at once. <laughs> so, you know, I think part of, uh, at least for our team, was uh, this redesign really kind of allowed us to reinvent our process. And in the beginning, when we started this, we, we felt like um, what worked well was theming our sprints. And so kind of saying, all right, this is um, a, I don't know, the the, the platform, uh, you know, theme and where we focus all of our attention because it was so easy to get distracted by. It's such a huge site. Um, it's so easy to get distracted by so many different things and, and theming things really worked well for us. But it's less about one person maybe being the owner for, for the one thing. And that's who you would always go for and having or an article specific team or a homepage specific team and more about like, you know, this is the web team and, and having, um, you know, smaller groups who work together collaboratively, and um, I wouldn't say we're we're on the pair programming level, but we're we're getting to a, a much more um, developer collaborative kind of environment. Very nice. Yeah, those those are a lot of the benefits that I see from Agile, and you know, it, it really does allow you to focus on what's important, and I think that's that's kind of the core of what you're talking about there. One thing that I want to ask about you you keep saying the desktop version is tablet and up. And Jameson thinks that's interesting. I think it's interesting too, but the reason I think it's interesting is because on the tablet, I, you know, I'm navigating with my finger. It's all touch. You know, it's not the same version. Well, it's pretty close to the same version of WebKit and things like that on my iPad. But, you know, it's just, it's not quite the same paradigm as, you know, keyboard and mouse. Um, do you find that there are mismatches or things you have to do to compensate one way or the other? Uh, we, we certainly had to account for, uh, touch and gestures and behaviors that come with uh, tablets. We actually we use a, a library called Hammer.js to do all of our touch-related stuff. Uh, yeah, and we had to build that on top of you know the pages that we already had and wanted to reuse. There, I think really it's hard because we changed the nomenclature. It's not mobile versus desktop. It's tablet and up. And what's, I, I find that interesting, too, that we decided to, uh, to go that route 
But basically, I think a lot of the features on the page are really designed for a, a decent internet connection. I really think that tablets are, are more likely to be on a, on a Wi-Fi or a, a faster network than you know, a phone that's on a radio. And you know, 3G and 4G, while they're making improvements, you know, it's still, it, we can't deliver the same experience to something smaller than a tablet. So I think we just drew the line at, at that experience. And we even had to uh, account for... Uh, two different breakpoints at the uh, different orientations of these tablets as well. Uh, so, you know, if you're in portrait mode, right, you have more vertical space, but if you're in our, you know, landscape mode, then, you know, things are a little more compact, but you've got more width to deal with. And it's interesting uh, programming for that. That's just why also it helps in, uh, to have a responsive framework in JS as well, is we can answer the orientation change and change our breakpoint when that happens. I think that's sort of the interesting thing is the the number of variables you have. I mean, there is you know there's touch versus keyboard and mouse, and then there's fast connection versus slow connection, and then there's big screen versus small screen. So I'd say that's the big sort of divider between the mobile site and uh, the tablet and upside is that the big screen versus small screen. Because in terms of content, there's there's a big difference there of what you can do um, and what you can achieve uh, with you know with photography or maybe a map or a, you know, an interactive or something that's. Um, People interact with them in different ways, and you, you, you're sort of much more constrained on a mobile screen of what you can fit on. So it's sort of a, it's, it, it feels like a very different challenge in that way. One of the interesting things about uh, the desktop version is we have 20 different breakpoints that we work with, and uh, so the article page can actually render into probably like a hundred different variations um, because we we change the the experience based on the the journalistic intent of the article. So if if we have an article that you know wants a jumbo size image, we show the jumbo size image with and um, have the content that surrounds it appear differently than if they wanted a large image, which is you know the size down um, from that. We also make a priority of our ads. So if if we have a large image, but we have a directly sold ad, meaning the New York Times has has worked directly with you know, uh, you know, an ad vendor um, will will give prominence to that ad and show above the fold. However, if we didn't have a, a, um, a directly sold ad in that position, it came off an exchange. Um, we use programmatic here. Um, we show the the content in a much more prominent position and and have the ad below the fold, and that would give room for the you know the text to appear above the fold along next to the the imagery. So in you know, when you add all the breakpoints in there, so you have um, images that, you know, are the right size for the right breakpoint and um, factored in um, between 768 all the way up to, to 20, 2050. Um, there are so many different ways that you can probably see one of our articles um, based on all that. That's really interesting. Yeah, there's just an incredible number of variables like we talked about earlier. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about accessibility. Did the redesign change anything to make it more accessible, or did you guys kind of already have that figured out? How, how does accessibility work on your site? So accessibility is definitely one thing that you know is really important to us, and um, we we definitely have a, a, a ways to go. And, and we've involved um, industry experts in the field, and you know accessibility has always been a, a very you know it, it's it's been a new thing for us. We we're, we have these much more complex websites. And, uh, you know, how screen readers, you know, read it and parse it, it has really changed quite a bit. So there's a lot that, you know, I think what we're going to do in the, the coming months to make our site more accessible just by removing the, the, the C column, which we used to have, which is the, the right rail that housed, you know, 
pretty much what used to house what people called the junk, you know, the, the ads and you know, <laughs> the different modules. And we've kind of um, integrated that into the body of the content um, to, to accommodate a lot of this responsiveness. So it integrates in the, into the, the content at smaller breakpoints and then is more off to the side in others. And, and that that creates a, a, a challenge for, for um, screen readers because it might enter into those modules unexpectedly because it's really part of the content. So there's a lot of things that we're working on to, to make our site accessible, but we're hoping that this iterative platform really kind of allows us to kind of take care of that, that low-hanging fruit first. And, you know, some of the challenges, there's definitely readers who have quite a, uh, you know, who report some challenges. And so it's definitely been a learning experience for, for us trying to make the, the site as accessible as possible. But um, I think we all are learning. Our QA lab, which is very much embedded into our process, this is kind of a, a new territory for them. You know, they've always been sort of, okay, you know, we have IE8 and, you know, tested on, you know, all the different Windows um, platforms and Mac platforms and, and mobile platforms, but now, you know, um, the, the whole um, different kind of devices are, are like JAWS or, or whatever um, are now being part of that process to make accessibility part of our workflow now. Sure. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean it in any way like an accusatory thing. Like, no, you guys yeah, are doing a bad well, job. How are you going to make it suck less? I just seemed like no, it'd be no, it, well, it, it's been I could learn from. It's been such an interesting project that you know when you launch a new site, you're like you said we said in the beginning, you're you're bound to, to piss off a lot of people. <laughs> so you know it was interesting. You found that on Twitter, people are are raving about it, and um, then you know you then you look on some some um, specific posts um, that we've talked about on the New York Times and some of the comments, and you know there's a few people with complaints. So there there's when you launch a, a site like the New York Times, you're you're bound to. Um, you know, disrupt somebody's flow. <laughs> so that's what really what we're trying to work out is kind of restoring some of those flows that people got used to, but maybe weren't adequate in really trying to make it kind of part of that a more integrated experience for everybody. It is a, a bit of a challenge, accessibility on the web, that uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the screen readers are built by third parties, and you know they they do their own thing and they try to account for common you know developer practices on websites to sort of figure out like what the intent is and they do a lot of work and that costs a lot of money and and people who use them and rely on them usually pay and then you know W3C comes along and they're trying to write a spec and and help uh, make this a standard and they have an open source uh, reader and they they don't always mesh and it's it's really hard to try and do this according to a spec but also try to deliver it uh, something to screen readers that people have paid for and are very uh, unlikely to get rid of uh, just because they they may have put out some real money to get them. So like for us it's it's a it's not only just a a challenge because uh, we're we're learning as we go and trying to figure out you know what we can do better in that department. But also I think it's just a challenge across the entire web to really get it right and follow these specs and be uh, accessible to the largest majority you know the largest share of screen readers possible. That makes tons of sense. So we talked a little bit, you mentioned varnish is one of the things that kind of makes it tick on the back end. Are there other performance things that you have to do for a site that gets as much traffic as New York Times, or do you just throw more hardware at it and crank varnish up? Um, we've been really amazed at just how far we can push Varnish. Uh, when we relaunched the mobile website last year, uh, it was previously done by an external company, so we didn't have... A uh, huge insight to exactly what their what their stack was at the time. Um, so we were sort of quite concerned. You know, when we're going to flip the switch, are we going to make sure that we've got enough? And um, we vastly, vastly underestimated Varnish's capacity. 
but um, there, you know, at least part of that is the structural decisions that you have to make along the way. Um, and Eitan's talk, talked about this earlier. The idea of, um, you know, obviously Varnish is going to cache all the content, but you can't cache the individual person's details or anything like that. So, you know, you always have to structure the site in such a way that you're, you've got the really key content is cached, and that's going to be incredibly fast. And then the actual sort of user-specific stuff can be, you know, use Ajax and sort of bring that in afterwards. And as long as you've got that right, then, you know, it scales very well. Yeah, and considering that we are a, a news organization, that our, our traffic can surge at times, depending on what happens in the world, and uh, if people choose to come to our site to get the information, uh, and you know, we can talk about specific events uh, when Bin Laden, you know, when the Bin Laden raid went on, uh, we saw a surge in traffic that was unlike you know things that we had uh, accounted for. So uh, Varnish has. has Proven exceptional in this in this way that even with you know a handful of of servers, it's been able to handle load like nothing else. I think Reed was the one who tweeted that you know Varnish was making grilled cheese sandwiches in between serving requests because it it just wasn't it was, we weren't seeing very much load on 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 our setup, uh, which is amazing. Yeah, it is pretty impressive sometimes what you can get out of a cache, and it sounds like Varnish really does a good job for you guys. Oh, definitely. Are there are there things that we didn't know to ask about New York Times that we should have? Well, one thing uh, that I, I can sort of talk to briefly on the mobile side of things that has the potential to be interesting in the future, I suppose it's probably the best way to say it, is that the back end on the mobile side is all written in Node. Um, so we do have JavaScript running on the back end and the front end. Um, and because we have to deal with these devices like old BlackBerry browsers and all that kind of stuff, where the initial development had to target, you know, it's a very sort of low baseline but we found actually working with JavaScript on the back end is adds this sort of great flexibility that if we want to start rendering stuff on the front end on devices that can support it, it's really simple for us to do that. So in the future, we, to be everything's sort of been developed in a very modular way. That means that when we you know know that we have a device like an iPhone that can handle some complicated front end stuff, we're just going to be able to pull some back end code straight over to the front end and then you know add to that, but then have the same stuff rendering to less capable devices. So that's that's something that I'm really excited about. It's something that I've not, you know, see, this is the first sort of uh, major site that I've developed using Node on the back end in that way. And it's it's been a really interesting process to go through. Interesting. So have you done much of that uh, kind of uh, tuning where certain devices get more on the front end and other devices just don't? <laughs> not yet, no. We've been doing lots of experiments internally, but um, really we, we got to the point of making sure that we launched with everything at this base level that's going to work everywhere. And so now we've just we yeah we've been experimenting around with what we can start doing next. Um, so hopefully you know further down the line you should see some interesting stuff. Yeah, I'd really like I, to see that. If you I was going to say that sounds that sounds really interesting too. Are you working on any open source tools or anything that other people can jump in and use or contribute with? We haven't got to that stage yet. Um, I'd love to. It's still just sort of very early stages now of working out exactly what stuff we can uh, we want to push down to the front end that makes sense to. But certainly. There's a lot of potential, I think, on the on the mobile side of things to uh, to add interesting stuff for devices that can handle it. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess watch this space is the best answer I can give. <laughs> Sounds yeah, good. There's certainly an interest, uh, just in general, in the technology department here. Is uh, anything that that we build that we find useful, and we're we're totally open to to sharing any of that. I don't. I don't there there have been very very limited things that we've actually released publicly, um, but there there is a, a a desire to to share some of the stuff that we use, and of course, it you know we want to make sure that it 
that uh, that we clean up all the uh, all the you know things, any shortcuts we may have taken uh, to ship, you know. But certainly uh, have a lot of interest in, in sharing things we've built. It's it's certainly worth mentioning that we we do have a bunch of uh, externally accessible APIs uh, that you can sign up and use. The you know all sort of. They're you know they're all modern JSON uh, JSON formatted and so on and uh, you know you can get article content is sort of an incredible uh, search facility you can uh, you know query times content going way back uh, it's really a fascinating thing to play around with we have hack days uh, a few times a year uh, here in the New York Times offices invite everyone to come in and just sort of hack on top of our APIs and make interesting content and um, I've seen some really really fascinating stuff come out of that so. Um, We've always enjoyed every opportunity we've had to invite people to use the stuff that we have. So it's definitely something that everyone wants to make sure we do in the future. Is there like a link to resources or is this just kind of an invitation only thing for special uh, occasions? I believe it's, uh, it's developer.nytimes.com. Yeah, it's either developer or developers.nytimes.com. But we have, we like have developer. There you go. So yeah, we've got all the listings of all the APIs, um, which are completely free for anyone to use. And uh, we also have uh, what we call the Times Open Blog, uh, where every developer here is encouraged to write a post for the Open Blog um, on whatever technology or whatever sort of topic they uh, they're, they're interested in. Um, and so that's sort of you know that's a really interesting resource that everyone tries to contribute to as best we can. That's super cool. I didn't know about any of that stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, the open blog is great. Uh, I think we're really interested in talking uh, in specific detail about some of the things we did for the the redesign in the in the coming months. Um, so definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, there's the latest one is by Reed himself, <laughs> of, uh, giving a broad overview of of basically how we did it, how we did the whole thing from a from a bird's eye view. That's cool. It looks like the redesign hasn't hit the open blog yet, though. <laughs> no, it, so. Um... The blogs is is a different platform. We still use WordPress um, for blogs, unlike um, our own, our own internal uh, CMS. So, uh, you know, one of, one of the interesting things about this redesign was it, it was so expansive, and so over the coming weeks and months, we're going to be kind of bringing some of the other things onto the new technology stack. Um, so you'll notice that the, the homepage is really just a reskin. So that's one thing that we're going to put on the new technology stack. Um, and then, you know, blogs is, is another thing that will be kind of inheriting a lot of the, the new infrastructure that, that we put in place as well. The tagline for this blog is amazing. All the code that's fit to printf. I like that. That's super good. <laughs> We also have a, a, an Easter egg in the in the JavaScript console for for folks visiting the article page. So that's definitely a, a plug there. Go find we it. Won't folks. spoil it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get into the picks. Jameson, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I have two. One is an article by a guy at Microsoft Research, which is a phrase I have never thought I would utter in my life. But he writes a weekly column for this magazine, and it's it's like a humor column. This one's about distributed systems. It's called The Night Watch, and it's amazing. I don't know. I can't describe it in words because it would be dumber than what it is in real life. So you should just read it. It's amazing. And then my second pick is just a band that I found out about. It's called Ballpark Music. It's kind of like pop-ish, kind of Americana type stuff. I don't know. It's really good, though. Uh, it's been my soundtrack for this week. So those are my two picks. Awesome. I'll go ahead and do some picks then. My first pick is, it's it's one of my favorite websites, honestly, and whenever I need filler text, I use it, and uh, that is baconipsum.com. 
And basically, it's your lorem ipsum, except uh, it is bacon ipsum instead. So the first word is bacon, and then it has like the first six or seven words after that that come after uh, lorem. And then after that, it uses uh, meat terms to follow kind of the same cadence and and sounds as uh, as lorem ipsum. So I, I really enjoy that. And it's just a nice way to add a little bit of humor to the code, especially in places where you know that the text is going to be replaced eventually. So that's one pick. One other pick that I want to make, I've been reading The Lean Startup again. And uh, oh, such a terrific book. And uh, these guys talked a, a little bit about... Uh, how they were uh, measuring things on the old website and figuring out how people used it. And then they had people use the new website and things like that. And, and that all goes into the validated learning that they talk about with Lean Startup. And it's just a terrific way to go. And I, I really try and encourage my clients to to do that same kind of thing so that they know what their customers want and that they can make sure that they can give it to them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely picking that. And I'm going to pick Audible again, audible.com. It's just a, it's, it's a terrific service. And it's nice because when I was driving down to California and then driving back from Las Vegas, uh, last week, um, I was able to just, you know, listen to books, um, including the lean startup. I also listened to some fiction and some other uh, books and it's just awesome. So, uh, audible.com. Reed, do you want to give us some picks? No, I'm leaving the picks up to Aton and Alistair today. <laughs> All right. Aton, hit us. Okay, um, so the first one is a, an article from HTML5 Rocks about ES6 promises. We use a lot of promises in our code, and I'm actually really excited uh, for those to go native. It allows us to do some really, really awesome stuff in terms of making sure we synchronize all of our API calls from the front end uh, to uh, you know animations. And I'm, I'm just really excited to see this, this uh, breakout of frameworks and, and go native in the browser. Uh, and anything Jake Archibald write is really great. And then the other one that I had, uh, it's a book. Uh, it's uh, called High Performance Browser Networking uh, by Ila Gregoric. And you can actually read it online for free, courtesy of O'Reilly and Velocity Conference. It's probably one of the best books on web development I've, I've read in the last five years, just truly understanding the web, uh, how it works, uh, what's coming in the future, and some really awesome capabilities like uh, WebRTC and uh, server push and sockets and things like that. Uh, it's just a really enlightening book, just really great. And if I, if I do one more, uh, um, I'm a big fan of the uh, Polymer project, uh, which is basically a, um, a take on web components uh, I think that's uh, a really interesting project, being able to uh, make your own widgets and, and serve them as a cohesive unit. Uh, Dom sh- uh, Shadow DOM is just a great idea. I actually want to see the advertising industry uh, perhaps uh, pursue uh, Shadow DOM and web components uh, and being able to just drop one tag that represents your ad and it's kind of siloed and won't break your page. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of, of where this, these are going, and people should definitely play around with web components today. So that's me, one of my picks. All right. Alistair, what are your picks? Okay. Uh, so my first pick is actually that everyone should try out the latest Firefox Nightlies. Um, I, like a lot of people, I suspect, used Firefox once upon a time, then I switched over to Chrome, and I sort of haven't really looked back all that much since. But we started playing around experimenting with actually getting the New York Times mobile site as a Firefox OS app, which led me to sort of try out a lot of this stuff that I haven't maybe looked at in, given the level of attention I should have in a while. And the latest nightlies on the Mac at least have a brand new UI, and the latest versions on um, Android are a lot slicker than uh, anything that I'd seen previously. Um, so I, uh, 
I'm using them day to day now, or partly just as an experiment. Um, but um, I've been really, really happy with them. So I recommend everyone just gives them a try. And um, second recommendation is an app that maybe people have already heard of called Pocket um, that somehow passed me by until recently. But it's a mobile app, but also has extensions for every single browser that just allows you to save articles, um, and then they'll automatically download to your phone. And um, for people like me who have long commutes underground where you have no internet connection, it's uh, it's really great because I just, during a day, I'll see numerous links, you know, on Reddit, on Hacker News, wherever, um, and not have the time to be able to read them. I just click the button, it saves it, it's on my phone, so without thinking about it, when I jump on the subway train, I just open it up and I've got everything I want to read um, there waiting for me, which is fantastic. On the non-tech side, a pick of a site called uh, Scouting NY, which might not be that interesting for people who don't live in New York, but um, it's basically a blog of this guy who is a film location scout who uh, travels around New York City and keeps sort of uncovering these really interesting buildings that people have sort of not not seen in about 50 years, it seems, sort of crazy art deco designs, all this kind of interesting stuff. It's a sort of a, a fascinating guide to uh, New York that you don't often see, I don't think. Awesome. AJ, you have some picks for us now? I do have some picks for us now. So I want to pick codepin.io. That is just a really cool place to create little mini test gizmos. I, I think it's maybe more interesting for things that are visual than like JS Fiddle, which is what a lot of people put their code snippets on. And there's a sharing option where you can be live coding with someone else. I think you have to have the pro version for that, but that's really fun. So you can, you know, it's got a couple of glitches in it. Sometimes you have to refresh the page or whatever, but it is kind of nice to be able to have, you know, somebody doing HTML and CSS and then me doing JavaScript to demonstrate some little bit of awesomeness together. Um, also, I'm going to pick GoMockingbird.com. I think I might have picked this before, but it's a mock-up site where you you can draw out wireframes and add links to objects that you've drawn so that you can click back and forth through a user interface experience and be able to see and talk about what that experience is going to be. And I found it to be really helpful in, in clarifying conversations, you know, rather than just having specifications listed out in, in bulleted list form to, to really go through and, and put them together in a wireframe. Cool. All right. Well, I think uh, that's all we've got. So uh, I want to thank you guys for coming. It was, it was really interesting to talk about and hopefully uh, we'll see some other great things coming out of the New York times. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks.